0: Heavenly Father, we want to continue to do that this morning, to simply exalt you. So prepare our hearts as we briefly look at the Word of God and talk about something that is so glorious and so dreadful, something that only you can manufacture. Prepare our hearts and open our minds, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may recall that when I was roughly about 10 years old, I think I've told you this story, but, well, I know I have, but not that you remember, because I can't remember my wife's name that sometimes. So, um, yeah. When I was about uh, 10 years old, we lived in the Rochester, Michigan, on the corner of Livernoy and Tinkin Road, and it was like a, up on a hill. So here's Livernoing Tinkin Road, and on the corner was this house that we were renting. And we had these huge hedge bushes. And at the base of the hedge bush, you know, they went like this, were these little, like, two, like triangle holes. And I, my friend and I were bored one day, and we decided we would take little pebbles and throw them through those little holes to the ongoing traffic. And, of course, we were hidden behind those hedge bushes, and no one heard anything, until all of a sudden... And I don't, I don't know if it was him or me. We heard glass shatter, and we ran and hid down at the bottom of the hill. And of course, nothing ever came of it. I remember a few days later driving out of the parking lot with my brother and my father, and they said, "Where did all the shattered glass come from?" And I said, "I don't know." A couple years later, we moved down the hill to a condominium complex, and I was with some of my friends. Um, and the same friend that was with me, Mike Labity, and we uh, the house was vacant, and it was in the summer, and we went up there and decided that we would do the same thing because we were bored young 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds. And so we started throwing these little rocks between the hedges and so on, and eventually that got boring, so the rocks went from this size to about this size. a little bit bigger. Until some of them got so bold, they went on the other side of the hedges and were throwing the rocks at the cars. And you can imagine... And the infinite wisdom that the eight or nine of us with our 11 years of age combined, we have the wisdom of a two-year-old. Uh, you know, we all kept our bikes at the bottom of the hill except for this one friend of mine. And shockingly to us, one of the drivers got out of the car and he <laughs> walked up the hill and we all fled down the hill. My friend went back for his bike and he got caught. Now here's the thing. I went home. And I act like nothing had happened. I was totally fine until my friend showed up at our house in the police car. And um, now I share that story with you because as bad as it was getting caught, what was the worst part of it all was the rest of that day waiting in dread and fear until my father came home. Okay? <laughs> I ended up getting paddled, and then I was grounded for two weeks. And on top of, had, we had to go to counseling and meet with the judge and all this stuff and so on and so forth. But the dread of punishment was just almost unbearable. Now, I know that I'm probably the only one in this place that's ever felt that never been in trouble because you guys are all well, these are righteous saints. Okay? So... But just remember that, the dread of punishment, because this is kind of what is the background of this verse right here. Remember, Jesus pronounced the destruction of the, of the temple, Herod's temple in Jerusalem. By the way, that was a terrifying thought to the Jews, absolutely terrifying. And the disciples' interest was piqued, so they came to Jesus privately with a question right here as we see this. And really, as you look at this, it's three questions in one. When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? and what will be the sign of the end of the age. And of course, you know, the brief introduction here, Jesus answered the disciples in verses 4 through 14 with a list of general signs, and that triggered uh, the beginning of the end, which is one sign, and that was Matthew twenty-four fifteen. that is the abomination of desolation. But now Jesus is about to answer the disciples with the unmistakable sign, of what is called his glorious return. And it is with great anticipation that every believer in Jesus waits for this remarkable event. I have never studied it before. This has been in quite the education for me. And it is a glorious event. And it is an awful event. And so I just get that out up front. Paul said this, is the hope of every believer. I think I put this verse up here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That grace, by the way, is the Son. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Here it is, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, can paraphrase these verses, it would be as this. As much as we are to live righteously, so much more are we to live lives in light of the second coming of Christ. Because when he returns, what will happen? Well, we will be instantly changed, transformed, and made like his glorious body. And in that moment, our hope and glory will be realized As we are made like him. This is your destiny if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's what awaits you. But we're going to dive into what is the sign. Finally, Jesus answers the question found right here in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, the first observation I have for you this morning, this is rather straightforward, okay? While we do not know the exact day or hour of his glorious return, we do know the general time of his return. And when is that? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. So we do know that, okay? immediately after the tribulation, the Lord will come in glory to set up his kingdom. Now, the tribulation that Jesus is referring to is called, remember what we talked about last week? The time of Jacob's trouble, right? Or the great tribulation. It's Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament and tribulation or great tribulation in the New Testament. And as we learned last week, it will be the worst period of time the world will ever know. It is so bad that unless the days were shortened, no life would survive. In the description of, of the events in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 28, which we have looked at so far, they are, quite frankly, unimaginably terrifying. But I want to begin, before we get into something serious, talking about famous entrances. I want to test you this morning. You should know these entrances, okay? What entrance is this? Which is what? Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Who knew that? Pretty, pretty well recognized. Okay. I thought more of you would because you're a smart group. Okay. If I know it, I figure you know it. Okay. How about this entrance right here? Bilbo Baggins, right? And Hobbit, right? Who knew that one? More hands? Yeah. Oh my gosh! More hands up for this? For <laughs> Downing Street? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Isn't that funny, Ron? <laughs> oh my God. So you know, we open a door, it's an entrance into a, a, a new space, right? Okay. Well, there are other types of entrances. How about this famous entrance? What movie is this in what year? Star Wars. Not Star Wars. What is it? Star Wars, A New Hope. Come on, people, in what year? 1977. 1977, Star Wars, A New Hope. I remember my parents finally taking me to that movie. Okay, you do too? Anybody remember when they saw this movie? Yeah, you had to, it was was huge. Okay, Darth Vader. How about this famous entrance? Jurassic Park, the the famous T-Rex, 1993 I believe it was. I remember it being in the movie theater watching with staff members of Campus Crusade, and seeing this movie, sitting next to a girl that was totally freaking out. Totally freaking out. I have a funny story. Should I tell you this about Robert Omedio Ching, the Kenyan uh, um, grad student that came to Bowling State University. He stayed with us for about two weeks, and he wanted to see Jurassic Park. So I got to know Robert a little bit, and he totally grew up where you would have to like, use the size to mow the lawn. He would go out in the river and wash his clothes and so on. So he's fascinated by a lawnmower. I said, go, feel free to mow my lawn, which he did. But um, I took him downstairs. I had a little surround sound system in a dark basement, and we watched this movie. And about three-quarters of the way, I had to stop because he said his nerves were frayed. He was freaking out. So I had to take advantage of During a tense scene in the movie, I took my hand and grabbed his leg like this, and he jumped up. And so on. Yeah. So that's always a fond memory of mine. How about this famous entrance? Yeah. It's the first time you really see the shark in Jaws, but it's Roy Schneider and so on. Yeah. Famous entrances. I had to do something like this because the stuff we're talking about is just so (laughs) heavy and so... uh, Serious, but those are five famous entrances that are easily recognizable to your average person, right? Now, Jesus, this is the point, he sets up his return with an entrance that, quite frankly, blows all these other entrances out of the water. Amen. And uh, I think it was around 2001, 2000, 2003, roughly around that time, it was when the Lord of the Rings movies came out. Came out. Do you remember that? It kind of took the country by storm, because for two and a half to three hours, you could be transported into another world called Middle Earth. I was in campus ministry at the time, and we saw the first movie, and then we took the college students to see a year later, I think it was, or two years later, um, the, not the Fellowship of the Ring, but the the Two Towers, right? The Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers. Now, at this point in time, this was a cultural phenomenon, and so we got tickets for the first showing when it came out, which was not it says Friday, but it always comes out Thursday night at 10 o'clock. We got tickets. Now, the way they do the tickets in, in Ohio, I never had to have assigned seats like they do here in Washington. It's always you just get there and you get your seat and you kind of save your seat and so on and so forth. So we got there, I'm going to say, at least 8 or 9 o'clock, an hour or two before to get our seats. And there was already seats were taken. And there's this great anticipation to watch this movie. And so we are sitting there, killing time and as a place begins to get filled up with people. And this was such a, a cultural phenomenon that people were dressed up as elves and dwarves and, and, and individuals from the Lord of the Rings and Wizards and so on. They got the anticipation was so great people couldn't contain themselves. So an elf and a dwarf went down in front of the stage, got out their swords and started sword fighting as entertainment. For all of us as we were waiting. And very clearly, when, when, when the, the, the movie staff found out, they put an end to that. But I remember when the, the, the preview started, and this place erupted in cheering because the previews finally started, but the previews lasted forever. Forever, it seemed like. Like 15 minutes into the preview, someone just yells out what everyone's thinking. He says, For the love of God, would you start the movie? (laughs) And of course, how do they start a movie? What's the first thing they do? They dim the lights. And then the movie starts. And the, the theme song for the Lord of the Rings began. Okay, That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's dimming the lights. Look at that again. The sun will be darkened. And the sun, yeah, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaking. You know what that means, if I can put it simply? The universe is starting to disintegrate. It's a glorious return, but I'm telling you, it is an awful time. Luke 21 and Mark 13 are parallel passages on the end times to Matthew 24. This is what Luke tells us. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars. Okay, that sounds right. But watch this and on the earth, dismay among nations. In perplexity, they're not going to understand. At the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear in the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when you combine Matthew and Luke's writings, you get a rather dramatic and, quite frankly, sobering scene. The sun goes black, the dimming of the lights before the entrance. And that that implication alone of the sun going black is staggering, because without sunlight, man cannot survive. Plants will not grow. So famine would be commonplace. Without sunlight, the temperature change would be what? Cataclysmic, exactly. Without sunlight, the moon does not give its light because it's reflected from the sun. And as the world disintegrates, what else happens? Well, the text tells us, just to believe, gravity is beginning to fail. That means the tides are instantly thrown into chaos. Stars begin to tumble out of their places. In Revelation, it is described as this. Did I put this verse up there? No, I did not. I'll just read this to you. Revelation 6 14 to 17. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Why would they be moved? Because the earthquakes and the shifting oceans and the movement. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to? to stand. Again, the men are fainting from fear. No one can stand. But not only is the sun darkened, not only is the moon is not giving its light, not only are stars falling and the powers of the heaven being shaken, we are now given a glimpse from Luke into what's happening on earth. The nations are in dismay. That means they're panicking. They're confused. They struggle to believe what their eyes see for the first time, which is what the waters of the earth do when gravity is altered. God uses gravity, as we know, to set boundaries for the waters of the earth. Did you know that? Job records the words of God concerning the seas, and I said to the seas, "'Thus far shall you come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop.'" God determined all that, and he uses gravity. Well, what's happening now when he comes again? That gravity is failing. And when that gravity changes, the seas and the waves begin to roar uncontrollably. The scene is so cataclysmic that it says men faint from fear. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Greek actually says men will expire. Men will expire, Is just a simple way of saying they're going to drop dead everywhere. As their hearts fail from the overwhelming fear and terror. What is so terrifying that men will draw their last breath? It's the certain expectation that God is coming in judgment. I think that that means that at this time in the earth, there really aren't that many, if at all, Atheists. Because the only explanation that's reasonable for what is happening is that God exists and is coming to execute His judgment. And when you read these verses and hear sermons on these verses, it's hard to comprehend what is happening. I mean, how is this possible? Well, there's one key statement at the end of verse 29 that is very helpful. It says, For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now the word heavens. Do you know? What, remember what that means? We've gone over this. It means what? It's the universe, it encompasses the entire universe. Now the universe is held together by what power? Well, thankfully Hebrews one provides us with the answer. God the Father, through God the Son, made the world. In describing God the Son, He says this, and He is the radiance of His glory. And the exact representation of nature and what? He's upholding all things by what? The word of his power. God the Father through God the Son created everything. And how is everything created? We just went through this this year. It was spoken into existence. Okay? So everything is upheld by the word of his power. The Son of God is holding all things together. Paul echoes this thing, thought when he writes this. Remember this? The Son is the invisible image of, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, again, we just talked about that, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Now, gravity, is it visible or invisible? But he still created it, right? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and look at this, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. It is God himself in the sun who holds things together. This is why gravity has never fluctuated, folks. This is why the stars stay in their sign orbits. This is why the sun rises and sets. And there are days and nights and seasons. Because the unchanging fixed powers of the heavens, scientists can mathematically predict thousands of years into the future what stars and plants will do due to their what? Orbits and rotations. But at his second coming, he speaks, and by the power of his word, he alters the laws he created to govern the universe. It's as if, if I can give you a visual, in one sense, God the Son held everything together in his hand, like this, and he decides to simply let go. The powers that normally hold the universe together no longer do and the result is simply chaos in the universe. All of the heavenly bodies, stars and planets and suns and moons, all of them, at random begin careening through space, and the earth becomes a victim of this incredible breakdown of the entire universe. In my certain preparation, I came across this name, Emmanuel Velikovsky. Have you ever heard of him? He was a Russian-American psychoanalyst, writer, and catastrophist. In one of his books, he wrote that if a heavenly body was loose in space, and it happened to pass close to the earth, and just caused the earth to tilt a fraction on its axis, here's what would happen, and I'm quoting him. At that very moment, an earthquake would make the earth shudder. Air and water would continue to move through inertia. Hurricanes would sweep the earth, and the seas would rush over the continents, carrying gravel and sand and marine animals and casting them onto the land. Heat would be developed, rocks would melt, volcanoes would erupt, and lava would flow from fissures in the ruptured ground and cover vast areas. Mountains would spring up from the plains and would travel and climb on the shoulders of other mountains, causing faults and rifts. Lakes would be tilted and emptied. Rivers would change their beds. Large land areas with all their inhabitants would slip under the sea. Forests would burn, and the hurricanes and wild seas would wrest them from the ground on which they grew and pile them, branch and root in huge heaps. Seas would turn into deserts their waters flowing away. Now, that sounds an awful lot like a lot of those signs that Jesus said would precede his coming, does it not? Now, I can't, I'm not creative enough, to, don't know enough to write something like this, but it's just inconceivable, isn't it? So what do we do to try and understand something like this? And we've I even mean, got, to, this is a portion, this is one verse, so I'm going to get to this morning, of his glorious return, and they're going to say, "Why is it glorious?" That's next week, but this is not a a fun time, okay? So, what do we do to make it understandable to us? Well, we take the edge off it. We make it funny. In the 1984 blockbuster movie Ghostbusters, the New York mayor and his team are trying to understand the strange phenomena plaguing the city. Remember that? The Ghostbusters come in, and they say to the mayor that he has to accept, and I quote, straight from the movie, the fact that the city is headed for a disaster, biblical proportions. What do you mean, biblical proportions, the mayor says? He says, what he means is Old Testament, real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies, rivers and seas boiling, 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Remember that from the movie? That's their attempt at describing the end. Now we smile and laugh at these funny scenes from the movies, but the truth is that the earth is held together by the power of the heavens. And when that power is removed, the chaos is simply indescribable. And in this time, when he comes again, now we haven't talked about his appearance yet, right? The sun is darkened, all this is coming. You know, life doesn't have long, and how it's even able to be maintained is only by the grace of God, because only God can preserve life and establish his kingdom during this time by his supernatural overruling of the chaos of those disintegrating natural forces. Of course, it reminds me, as I close with this, of Jesus calming the wind in the sea by the what? The power of his spoken word. Hush, be still. I'm going to try that on my wife when she's talking to her football game today. Hush, be still. Think that'll work? No, it will not work. But it says, immediately, the wind died down, and it became perfectly Calm. But we got through one verse of his return. That's what it's going to be like, folks. And when you slow down and study this, and it's, it's complicated to study, don't get me wrong, it's, it's hard for me. I have to understand it, and I have to take the cookies that are on this shelf for these writers and bring it down to here where I live and my understanding, because this is where we live and we can understand it together. But it is something that is really to think that It's going to be a a glorious, dark entrance, and what it will be like when he comes again. And so I think it's very appropriate that we just do this. We have to do this. We have to, because we get so caught up in everything else, but live our lives in light of the second coming. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as we close and are about to enjoy some food and fellowship we ask that you would first of all just bless this food use it to nourish our bodies but imprint upon our hearts in our minds the very core of our being that you are coming again that we're to pray for your return and we are to live our lives sensibly righteously in a very holy manner In a way that brings you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Go enjoy some food and football and. Amen.